Okay, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word, and we thank you, Father, for giving us uh, your word, for giving us this particular story. And we pray, Lord, that, Father, you would teach us from your word this evening, Lord, that we may benefit uh, from these things. Uh, and, Father, we ask, O oh Lord, that, uh, Lord, you, you would teach us all that, uh, Father, you would have us to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, when I first, early, early on, when I was reading this passage, I used to really struggle with verse 1. I don't know, has anyone ever struggled with verse 1? Namely, Jesus was led up by the Spirit, capital S, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Has anyone struggled with that verse? I mean, my struggle was this. I mean, here we're told that Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where He is to be what? to be tempted by the devil. Um, I, I remember thinking to myself, I would pause here and I'd say, wait a second, doesn't Jesus say in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into what? Temptation. And it just doesn't seem like, I mean, why? I would think that the Spirit would want to keep Jesus from these temptations. He'd want to he'd try to keep Jesus from any temptation. But here we're told in verse 1, what's going on? Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So I think we can feel some tension here. And, uh, you know, we, we might ask ourselves, what's up with this? And really, the, 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 the answer is quite simple, and I think it's very instructive. In fact, the word here, tempted, this Greek word can be, it can be also translated tested. Uh, we, could, we could read this verse, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. So the question before us now is, is Jesus being tempted or is Jesus being tested? And um, the answer actually is both. Now, when we're studying these passages, you've heard me say many, many times, there's three things that's important. What are those three things? What's that? 
You can, you can say it louder. <laughs> the first time, it's, it's, it's context, context, and context. <laughs> yeah, what's the context? What's the context of this passage? If we back up a little bit to chapter 3, what's going on in chapter 3? We have the ministry of John the Baptist, right? Verse 1, chapter 3, John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He's preaching a, a, a message of repentance, right? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The imagery there is the imagery of ancient kings when they used to travel they would have uh, tennis go out in front of them and clear out obstacles so that the king could pass easily by. In fact, we still do this today. One year, you've probably heard me tell this story. One year I was, uh, I think I was headed to the seminary actually when the president of the United States was in town and his destination was downtown in, in uh, Pittsburgh. And it was really weird. You couldn't get on the parkway, you know? So, I mean... You want to talk about a mess. Pittsburgh was a mess. You couldn't get on the parkway inbound or outbound. The parkway was completely cleared off um, so that the president could get off Air Force One, get in a limo, and head all the way right down to his destination. And it actually was really spooky at different times. When, you know, when you, as you well know, in Pittsburgh, when you're driving around, there's various times where whether you're on the parkway or not, you can see the parkway. And when you look over and not see a single car on the parkway, that was weird. So here, John the Baptist's ministry is very much, in a sense, like that in a spiritual way. He's preparing the way for the Lord, making his path straight. Well, what kind of obstacles do we have in the way of the work of uh, the ministry of the Lord in our hearts? I mean, that's a pretty easy question. It's sin, isn't it? And that's why he has this message of, of repentance and uh, so therefore, that's John's central message, a message of repentance, and his baptism is a baptism of repentance, but that doesn't really help us out much because here we find more tension. When we read on down to verse 13, we see that Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be what? Baptized by him. Now, what would Jesus be doing uh, entertaining a baptism of repentance. What would Jesus have to repent from? He's without sin, and here he is participating in this baptism of repentance. And John tries to stop him, doesn't he? At verse 14, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And Jesus says, No, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to what? Fulfill all righteousness. Okay. If you're like me, you read that and you think, all right, what in the world does that mean? Uh, it's a puzzling text, isn't it? What, uh, what does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? Well, Jesus came to save sinners. How does he save us? He saves us by dying in our place, right? He saves us by going to the cross, taking the wrath of God in our place. He saves us by taking away our guilt and our shame. He saves us by also giving us a perfect righteousness, right? So what is Jesus doing uh, uh, participating in a baptism of repentance when he has no sin to repent of? He's actually identifying himself with sinners. He's identifying himself with us. 
Uh, he has no sin to repent, but in, in going through with this, he is, he's identifying with each one of us, uh, sinners who he came to save. And verse 16 and 17 are of utmost importance here. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, we see the Trinity in this scene, don't we? Uh, the Son coming up out of the water, the Spirit being manifested like a dove, and the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And what is the testimony of the Father? What is the Father saying? He's pointing to Jesus. He's saying, this is my Son. And what else is He saying? I'm well pleased with Him. And it is in that context that the next thing that happens, Jesus is led out into the wilderness by the Spirit, right? Now, what I want to do tonight is I want to put this thing together, but it's kind of one of those deals where we're going to pull some parts out of the box and we're going to kind of leave them lay around. Just kind of leave that lay around for a minute. We're going to gather it up in a second. I want to make another connection here that helps us put this together. Last month, in the first part of this series, we looked at the Garden of Eden, right? In Genesis 3, and we studied the temptation of Adam and Eve, correct? We're Adam and Eve. What do they do in the garden? Uh, they're tempted, Right? And they're tempted to eat from the forbidden tree, correct? And what do they do? They fall to the temptation, they eat from the tree, and we know the rest. But what's the context of that story? What's the context of Genesis 3? What happens in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? It's the creation narrative, right? And as God creates, He has this referring refrain as he creates he, he looks at his creation and what does he say about it yeah he said it's all very good in other words he's well pleased with it isn't he okay that's a clarion call for the devil when god is well pleased with something you might as well just be um, that's a clarion call for the evil one and I want, to make, I want to make application of that right now because um, God is doing a lot of wonderful things in this church. He's doing a lot of wonderful things in our midst. And, I mean, we're always talking about it. We're always buzzing about the things God is doing, the way we're all growing in Christ. We can actually see it in each other, can't we? And people are coming to know Christ and it's hard to say what kind of ministry is going on on the internet now with the, with the amount of, of activity that's taking place with a lot of the articles and, and the, the, uh, the uh, quotes and the various things that are being put up on the internet, the sermons and the activity of the downloads of the sermons. There's a lot of things going on. Do you suppose God's pleased with any of this? I think that He is. I think He's the one that's doing it. So what's the application? One of the reasons why I want to get into spiritual warfare is because guess what? Guess what? I mean, as God does these things, as these things happen, what do you suppose going, is going to happen? We're going to, have, we're going to suffer assaults from the evil one, aren't we? Now, we won't suffer assaults directly from Satan himself. It's unlikely that any of us will ever meet Satan himself, but he has a bunch of compadres that he's in cahoots with, isn't he? And uh, it is to these the demonic realm, to these demons that, that uh, 
uh, we, we will have to wrestle with. And what is one of, what is, I mean, if you could think of one of the devil's favorite tactics, what do you suppose his favorite tactic is? Especially when it comes to wreaking havoc in a church. It's division, isn't it? It's got to be division. And that is what's going on here. The last words that we read in Matthew 3, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then as we turn the page to chapter 4, the first words that we read are, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, what is going on here? God is testing. Christ is being tested for sure. But the devil is tempting. It's one thing to test. You know, James teaches us that that God will never tempt any one of us. God doesn't tempt anyone. Because to tempt someone is to incite them into committing evil. God doesn't do that. But God does indeed allow us to be tested. He tests us. So from God's perspective, Jesus is being tested. From the devil's perspective, he's trying to, he's trying to drive a wedge. He hears these words, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Okay, we're going to fix that. This is take number two. You remember the last time, we're going to do it again. Uh, so he's attempting to, uh, to drive a wedge between the son and the father. And before we go any further, I want to point your attention that the devil is used. There's three different words that are used for the devil in our, in our passage. The devil, Satan, and tempter. And the devil is really the English counterpart of the Greek word diabolos. And Satan actually is a Hebrew word. It just, it's... Uh, the Hebrew word is Satan, and when, it, when it's brought into English, we just pronounce it Satan. And both Diabolos and Satan, uh, they mean adversary uh, or opponent or accuser. Um, it's a, kind of important to hang on to that. We'll say much more about that as we go along. Uh, probably not tonight, but as we go along in this series. So uh, if you look with me to verses 2 and 3... Matthew 4, verses 2 and 3. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, how does Jesus answer in verse 4? What's he say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Yeah. Now, Jesus responds to the temptation by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, namely Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. And, of course, Deuteronomy 8.3 has its own context. And it's really interesting. I mean, does anybody know what's going on in Deuteronomy 8.3? Does anybody know the context of that? Uh, Deuteronomy is um, actually a book. Deutero means twice or second. And, and onomy, that part's namas, it's a repetition of the law. And what's going on is Moses is preparing the Israel to enter into the promised land. And he's basically repeating all the precepts. You know, the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy 5. And a number of the uh, incidences that have been taking place uh, in the wilderness uh, are... Uh, th- this is all recapitulated by Moses. Now, at this time, Israel has been wandering around in the desert. How long? Does anybody remember? Forty. That's an interesting number. Forty years, right? How long did Jesus fast? 
40 days. That's an interesting connection right there. And in, in, in Deuteronomy 8, in verse 2, Moses says this to Israel. He says, uh, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. You see, they were being tested. Whether you would keep His commandments or not. And then verse 3 in its entirety reads this way. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, we're starting to see some parallels here, aren't we? Israel is, has been tested in the wilderness for 40 years years. Um, anyone, how well did they pass the test? They failed to test miserably, didn't they? And they failed to test miserably and repeatedly uh, as they were being tested, the true priorities of their hearts was on everything but the Lord, wasn't it? It was a, it was a, a miserable time. And here, Jesus is under the same kind of test. Again, to God, it's a test to the evil one he is trying to drive a wedge between uh, the Father and His Son. Now, the Father has just proclaimed that He's well pleased with Christ. And now it's Jesus' opportunity to clearly reveal that His priority is the Father. And what's interesting is Jesus, by quoting from Deuteronomy 8, we know Jesus has got it. Jesus fully understands what's going on here. This is a period of testing where Israel... Uh, in a sense, Israel sometimes is referred to as the Son of God. Israel fails. But here comes the new Israel. Here comes Christ, Jesus, uh, the Son of God, with whom God is well pleased. And He refuses to fail. I can't imagine how hungry He was after having not eaten anything for 40 days. Uh, physicians tell us that 40 days is about the outside of the window upon which we can fast and not do permanent damage to our bodies. You can fast for about 40 days, but after about 40 days, permanent damage actually begins to happen to your body. Uh, but what is the heart of Jesus here? He refuses to please the desires of the flesh, the desires of the body, because He realizes the test that's taking place. And His true heart's desire is to follow the will of the Father, isn't it? So we see what's going on here. So, you know, we could, you, you, the first time I read this, I can remember reading this and studying this and thinking, my goodness, what would be wrong with tur turning a few stones into bread? I mean, surely Palestine could get by with a few less stones laying around, couldn't they? But you start to see what's really taking place here. Jesus absolutely refuses to gratify his hunger because he trusts in the Lord and realizes that when the Father is ready, who loves him, who's well pleased, he believes. He heard the voice. He heard the voice of the Father say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. He realizes the Father's going to care for me when he's ready. Until then, I'm going to trust him. Now, uh, 
what, what kind of lessons do we get out of this? I'm gonna, there's lots of things that could be said. I just want to share three, and I've already elaborated on one of them. One of, the, one of Satan's favorite uh, tactics with a church is division. And I'll tell you how, what it looks like. This is what it looks like. You, you find you're getting along with everybody just lovely. And then all of a sudden you start to feel this, this wedge between you and someone else in the room. And it's not really because they've done anything, or maybe they did, or maybe you think they might have done something, or maybe, maybe you think something's going on, but you feel this wedge. And if we ever experience that, we need, we need to remember this passage, because that's a lot of times how the devil will start. He'll start to wreak havoc amongst the unity of the group. That's one of his favorite tactics, especially if he can get a few people if he can drive a wedge between groups, he can really do a lot of damage to a church. A lot of times you'll hear about churches where there's a group of people that now are at odds with another group of people, and it can do great damage to the church. So we need to pay attention to these things. Secondly, Jesus handles this temptation with the proper use of Scripture, doesn't he? What I'm amazed about here, and I'm always amazed, is I would have had no idea what was even going on in the desert. I mean, if the devil would have come to me and said, you know, turn these stones into bread, I wouldn't, have any, I wouldn't have had any idea what was really happening. But Christ knew exactly what was going on. And he handled it perfectly. And he handled it perfectly for you and for me. Now, what do I mean by that? One of the great things that we get from the cross is we, we, when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, yeah, our guilt and our sin is all taken away, right? But one of the great things we get is that righteousness that Jesus offers, that perfect righteousness. It's being earned right here, isn't it? I'd have blown it in this situation. I have a sneaking suspicion I'm not alone. But Christ, He kept it perfectly. And that perfection is ours in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful truth? And thirdly, uh, we see the foundation of our salvation. I mean, um, you know, we've never, we've never failed. I mean, one thing that we don't fail to do is fail to do. You know what I mean by that? Um, but Christ uh, never once failed. Each time He obeys the Father in our place, and He obeys Him perfectly. So, um, so yes, we want to look for, uh, we want to look for division. I mean, if you ever experience any kind of wedge that's going on, any one of us, listen, if we ever experience a wedge between someone else in this group, then we've got to deal with it. We've got to deal with it immediately. If there's something that's happened that warrants having a discussion with someone, have the discussion with someone. But if it's just, just beware, because that's one of the devil's favorite tactics is to create division. Secondly, we, one of the reasons why I'm so, uh, I'm always wanting to teach the Bible, always wanting to preach, always wanting to get into the Bible is because in order to stand against these assaults, we need to know our Bibles really well, don't we? You know, I, we just, we can't know them well enough. And thirdly, um, this talk is quite different than the first talk that I gave. And if you remember the first talk that I gave, I gave kind of a warning. There's kind of a danger when you start studying spiritual warfare. One of the dangers that 
I think as a pastor that I need to be careful of is that I don't influence anyone to obsess over spiritual warfare. We don't want to create these preoccupations with the demonic realm. You know, we want our preoccupations to be with Christ Jesus. So we look to Him as our foundation. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we just recognize that You're doing so many things tonight, Father. As, just as I bring that up and I look around the room, everybody's nodding their heads, Father. You've been so pleased to do so much, oh Father, that we recognize, Lord, that um, temptations of all kinds and assaults of all kinds will indeed be coming our way. So Father, we pray that, Lord, you will use these talks and that you will, you will use um, uh, everything that's available to us, Father, to prepare us for, uh, for these assaults, Lord, that, uh, Father, we would be able to stand in the, in the evil day, as uh, the Apostle Paul puts it, and that, uh, Father, we'll be able to withstand the assaults of the evil one. So to these ends, O oh Lord, we give you the glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.